but this week we finish off our three mindsets for 2024. Uh, the first mindset, if you have forgotten that or you haven't heard it, is about thinking about becoming and not producing. It's cutting across our culture's idea that you need to be able to produce, you need to be able to achieve something in order to have an identity. But the Bible tells us that our identity is rooted in who God is. And the Bible tells us, and this is what we spoke from in 2 Peter, that if we grow in our character, if we grow in who we are becoming, we will never fall. So if you don't want to fall in 2024, think about becoming who you are becoming rather than what you're producing. And then last week, we, saw, we talked about what you are sowing. Think about what you are sowing rather than what you are reaping. We spoke about momentum and how momentum is achieved by breaking inertia. We need to put in a disproportionate amount of energy in order to, to break off and like a rocket in order to gain any momentum. And it's only over time that you are going to experience uh, the benefits of momentum. So instead of thinking about what you are reaping at the end of the day, be deliberate about sowing. And so those are the two weeks. Today, the final mindset that I want to put before you is to think about the edge rather than comfort. Think about the edge rather than comfort. Let's turn to Genesis 15, 1 to 6, and this is what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Why don't we just pray? Dear Jesus, I pray that you speak to us. You speak to us about uh, how you are taking us to a new place uh, individually and as a church. I pray to God that we will be stirred up after this message uh, to live more holy for you, to listen to your word and to lean into what it is that you are wanting to do in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. This year, um, I, I read a book called Grit. And it's uh, written by a, uh, she was a principal actually, and then she, she moved from being a principal to uh, psychology, and she started to examine how uh, talented people don't always achieve everything that is in what we might think is their potential. Sometimes we take IQ tests and, and we think, oh, because I've got a high IQ, I'm going to make it, or I've got a low IQ, I'm not really going to have such a great achievement. And uh, Angela Duckworth actually looked into that and she found that talent is not the greatest predictor of success, but rather grit is, this ability to persevere, this ability to, uh, uh, to uh, hold something in mind, to be passionate about it and to grow in it. And in this book, one of the things that really got my attention is that she spoke about how, um, you know that there's this 10,000-hour rule? Has anyone heard the 10,000-hour rule? Yep, a couple of people have. The 10,000-hour rule basically states this, that if someone practices something for 10,000 hours, they are going to become a master at it. Uh, they're going to become this, basically an expert in that arena. 
And, and that was generally something that was put forward, that if we practice hard, we're basically going to become really good at stuff. And so that kind of leans into what we spoke about last week. It takes sowing before you reap. But then she made this discovery that the people who really make the most of their talent is not just simply doing 10,000 hours of something that makes them a master at it, Rather, it is something that she calls deliberate practice, and it's something that is known as deliberate practice. Basically, experts in their field don't just practice random stuff, they practice what is on the edge of their ability. They find the things that are difficult, and they spend countless hours, the 10,000 hours, not in the things that they have already achieved, but in the things that they have not yet achieved. There is this drive, there is this desire to work on the things that are on the edge rather than the things that are already been mastered that makes people experts in their field. That really challenged me because, you know, I preach most Sundays, maybe three out of four, maybe even five out of six Sundays a year, and, and I've probably clocked up hours and hours of preparing messages, and when I read that, a thought came into my mind. When was the last time I took something that I'm not so good at when it comes to my preaching and my public speaking and tried to work on that? I discovered that because I am a talented, gifted communicator, praise be to God, I can sometimes just simply lean into the things that make it really easy for me to do this. Like some weeks when it's really busy and things are uh, all over the place, I know that in, in the midst of all of that, I will be able to come up with a message that most people will go, well done, thank you. And, and so, but when I read that, I was going, I think God's got something more for me. I don't think that this is the best preaching that you're ever going to get from, from me. In fact, I hope that you stay along our journey for the next 20 years because 20 years later, I'm going to be way better than I am now, but not because I simply preach every Sunday, but because I am learning that I need to stay on the edge rather than in my comfort zone. And when we see this passage that we read in Genesis 15, we see one of the reasons why we need to be on the edge rather than in the comfort zone. When we are in the comfort zone, our vision is limited. When we are in our comfort zone, there are things that obscure our vision because everything happens to kind of be kind of familiar. When you are, let me put it this way, when you are in your own home, do you notice stuff as much as when you go to someone else's home? You know, when you visit someone else's home, you see the way that the, the colors are. I mean, like we run our live group in our house and people come in and say, oh, that's a nice color. I'm like, what color? Well, of course there is a color on our walls. Of course our furniture has a color. But when people go, oh, I love that color. I'm like, yes, that is a color. I have become colorblind to the things that are in my house because I have become familiar with it. And so when God is talking to Abram in this story, he begins to bring Abram out of that tent to the edge of his tent, in fact, a little bit outside of his tent, so that he could open his eyes to see the stars. And this week, over this series, I have brought really practical messages. And I hope that today there is the element of practicality. You know, we can actually think about what edges that God is taking us to uh, or, the, or the areas that we want to become more of an expert in. We can work on those things. We can grow in those things. 
But when I was preparing for this week, I want to put forward that there is an edge that all of us need to start to work on, and that is the edge of our faith. This series uh, ends today on a message about how God wants to take us to the edge of our faith. If you see the words that Abraham was speaking to God, you will notice that Abraham, who, by the way, in our Christian uh, uh, um, uh, history, is known as the father of faith. Yet when God speaks to him in the first few verses, do you hear someone who is excited about what God is promising him? Do you see someone who is excited about his future? I see someone who is disappointed. I see someone who's maybe even frustrated. I see someone who's actually maybe taking a few steps back and going like, oh, you know what? I've heard this promise before God, but it hasn't come to pass. What are you going to do about that? Do you know that before uh, uh, this, God had already promised Abraham the same kind of promises but it had already been years before this encounter took place. In fact, from the first time God promised him that he would have a child, all the way to his fulfillment was 25 years. Sandy did not wait that long for her <laughs> title, and she was already disappointed. When was the last time God put a promise into your heart? Maybe put a call into your heart. Maybe put something into your heart about what your life could look like and what your future could be and his fulfillment has been delayed and you're responding like Abraham, the father of our faith. And maybe if that is you, God is saying that you need to come back to the edge rather than to stay in your tent. But you might say to me, Nate, that's kind of taking this one little story and making a whole deal out of it. Well, that's what I thought too. When I looked at that, I was like, God, that might sound really nice, but is that really what we're meant to take about it? I mean, Abraham literally was in a tent, and then he walked out of the tent, he saw the stars, and then he believed in you. Is that literally what you're asking us to do tonight? Everyone step, step out of your house, look into the sky, and go, wow, wonderful promises. In fact, I don't know if I want Abraham's promise. I don't know if I want to be a father of nations. That's not really the promise I was going for. So what can we take from this? And I felt God put on my heart that we need to actually examine Abraham's whole journey, and we will see a pattern of how the father of faith stayed on the edge rather than in comfort. You ready to go with me on this? So when God first calls Abraham, we find this in Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 to 3, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is the first time we really hear of Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so when God came to Abram, he gives him quite a strange opening statement. He says, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Your country, your kindred, and your father's house. When I used to read this, I used to think about it this way. I used to think that God was just basically saying, go really far away from everything and anyone that you know. That's what it kind of looks like, right? Until I did a bit more research, a bit of reading, and I discovered that God specifically chose to describe Abram's country his kindred, and his family for a specific reason. Do you want to know the reason? 
is because back then, in the, uh, what we were called ancient Near East, it included a whole bunch of different uh, countries like Mesopotamia, Egypt, Babylon. This is the kind of place that Abraham was growing up in. And in that place, there was a certain way of relating to the gods. This was what their conception was. Now, spoiler alert, Abram is not a Christian. Did anyone know that? Abram's family were not Christians, partly because Jesus hadn't come yet, but because God hadn't been revealed to them. So very, very extremely likely, Abram's family were uh, very much the product of their culture and they believe in the gods. And Abram would have grown up worshipping the gods. Uh, There are some uh, um, researchers that say that it's quite likely that Abram's family were moon god worshippers because a couple of places that they lived and a couple of their names were related to moon god worship. That's the kind of family that he was a part of. But how people worshipped the gods back in those days was that there were different tiers of gods that they would worship. They would worship a national god that everyone would put in together, and they would worship this country's god. And specifically, there would be these festivals that were uh, um, put towards these, um, these deities, uh, these national deities. Everyone would worship them, but specifically the priesthood and, uh, and the rulership, the, 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 the monarch and their families would have the national god as kind of like their primary god. But in the ancient Near East understanding, the family and the region did not necessarily also greatly, uh, intimately devote themselves to the national god. They would worship them because that was what the country did, but because the national god would have been far away, distant, it would be, uh, you know, they would be in a city center, maybe they would be just outside of the city, they would need a different god to worship. And so Abram would have worshipped his country's God, and then there would have been a region's God, maybe his kindreds, his kin, his kin family would have worshipped a certain God, and quite likely Abram would maybe have also adopted a personal God. That's kind of what it would have been like, because they needed to find a God who was available. So they went on like, What's the Tinder for, for, for deities? I don't know. But they would have swiped through, and they would have found a God that was available, and they would have worshipped that God. That's how things would have worked back then. This was normal for them. It's like, oh, uh, you know, the river God. We don't live close to the river. Swipe. You know, we grow corn and wheat. Let's worship the God of corn and wheat. Or let's worship the God of of rain because we really need rain for our crops. And that's kind of how they understood every natural phenomena. There was some God attached to it. And so whatever natural phenomena they really wanted to have on their side, they worshiped the God of that. And so when God reveals himself to Abram and he says, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's home, What he was actually saying is, I'm going to reveal myself as your personal God. And you're not going to worship anyone else but me. But if you stay where you are, you are likely going to keep worshiping your country's God, your kindred's God, and your family's God. 
But no, that is not what I'm going to allow you to do. This is an edge here because Abram would have known these gods since he was growing up. That was the region that he came from. He would have understood. And now what he was being asked to do by God is say, leave the protection of those gods that used to make your family prosperous and make you comfortable. Leave them because I'm going to reveal to you a greater God than all of them. This was a big ask. Imagine me saying to you that because God wants to reveal himself as your personal God, you need to leave the God of your career, the God of your family, the God of your culture, the God of your nice fancy house and your nice fancy car, the God of your lifestyle because he wants to show you something else. The God of your insurance, I don't know who would consider that. Maybe that was the God that was available. But God was saying, you need to leave all of that because I'm going to reveal to you how you prosper in life, and that is with me as your God. I believe that there are some people in this room that need to hear this because there is a God who wants to reveal himself as a personal God to you, but he cannot compete with the gods that you are familiar with. He cannot compete. He will not compete with your other pursuits and your other forms of worship. He will not compete with other gods. The Bible tells us that he is jealous and that he is the only God, but the only God deserves to be worshipped in the only, as the only God in your life. And so if we are not willing to leave our country, if we are not willing to leave our kindred, if we're not willing to leave our Father's house, in terms of what you know, in terms of what is worship, this is a really big deal. Because gods were not just some sort of faraway deity. That kind of mindset came in way later in history. In the people of that day, every god you worship was heavily involved in the order and stability of life. Are you willing to leave the order and stability of your life in order to follow Jesus? That is the question. That is why I need you to start considering. Next year, are you willing to live on the edge or are you going to go back to your comfort? If you think, if you are here in this room, I put forward to you that you came here not because you are already got everything all together and that you're happy with the way life is. Because if you are happy with the way life is, you will not have seeked out a religious service. There is something in you that goes, there is something missing. But in order to get what God is saying, you need to leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house in order to find order and stability in the way that God has said, not in the way that anything else, anyone else has said. That is the invitation that God makes to you. But there's something else that I discovered about Abram. It wasn't just the fact that he left his father's house. It wasn't just that he migrated from where he was. It's that he actually stayed what we might call a semi-nomad. He did not have a house. In fact, he regularly lived in tents, as we have already seen. He was in a tent, not because he was going camping on his holiday, but because that was literally where he dwelt. And so when God called Abram away from his family, his kindred, and his country, he possibly left city lifestyle in order to become a nomadic shepherd. And what we need to understand once again is that in that day and age, 
there was this massive movement towards building cities. Everyone was attracted to city life. That was just the norm of it. In fact, when I was looking at this, uh, someone gave this really interesting example about how Abram, it wasn't easy for him to be a semi-nomad. It wasn't easy for him to continue living in tents. You know, we, we kind of have this mindset, we read, oh, yep, yep, he's a shepherd, he lives in a tent. Yep, that's what people back then used to do. No, people back then were making cities. They lived in cities. They preferred the metropolitan life. But Abraham was called not to do that. And I want to show you, uh, uh, firstly, the, the tension that he would have lived in and then why. All right. So the first thing that we find out is that when Abraham left his family, he brought with him his nephew called Lot. And at one stage, God had so blessed both of them, partly for their obedience. Remember, sowing and reaping, you obey God. I believe that he actually does shower blessings on you. And so Abraham's and Lot's flocks really grew, and he got to a place where those flocks were too large for the land that they were moving around in. And many of you might know the story. And so Abraham and Lot, they actually went separate ways. Abraham said to Lot, you get to choose. You choose wherever land you want to go to for your flocks because we are too large to live together. And so Lot chose a certain direction, and Abram went in another direction. Remember, the point of this was so that Lot would be able to keep his flocks, and Abram would be able to keep his flocks. Yeah, remember that decision? Well, we find very soon after, what does Lot do? He settles in a city called Sodom. He chose the land. If you remember your Bible story, he chose the land that was very suitable for flocks, but what did he then do? He gave up those flocks to live in the city. He gave up those flocks, the very flocks that he was fighting with his uncle over, to live in a city called Sodom. And when you read the story, many of you might already know of the name Sodom because Sodom ain't a good place. Sodom is where the word sodomy comes from. Sodom is a morally decaying place. In fact, when God sent a couple of angels into Sodom, what did they want to do? They wanted to rape the angels. That is the kind of place that this was. And Lot chose, instead of keeping his flocks, having the openness of the land, he chose to settle in the city. Why? Because city life was attractive. City life, settling down, is attractive. And so Lot stays in Sodom, and we find a little bit later that God actually brings judgment on Sodom, and that's why the angels were there. And so the angels tell uh, Lot that you need to go. You need to run because God's judgment is going to be here. Genesis 19, 17 to 20, and it says this, And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills. And the hills were probably originally where Abraham and Lot first separated. They were up in the hill. They saw the land. And so they said, go back. This is kind of an instruction. Go back to when you were blessed. Go back to that place that you knew that you were blessed. Go back to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to him, oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Lot and Abram chose different paths. 
What do we see in this story? We see in this story, and, and I read this up, and it, it fascinated me. Lot wanted the city life. Lot wanted the convenience that was associated with city life. But there's something about city life that we don't understand because our cities aren't built like that. Cities were always built around their country's God. Cities centered around the worship of their national God. Sodom had a national God, a national God that would allow them all sorts of immoral behavior, probably child sacrifice, definitely rape was allowed. And even though there was the convenience, there was a moral decay that Lot said, I prefer to God. Abraham, on the other hand, he stayed a semi-nomad because he was not willing to compromise on what God was calling him to. Remember, God had revealed to him that I'm going to be your personal God. His whole morality and his whole view of life was now centered around what God said was good and what God said was not. He was no longer going to make decisions for himself, although he sometimes did. We know Abraham's story. But he was meant to be centering his life around God. Why am I bringing this up? Is because I think that this is another edge that we see in Abram's life. An edge that didn't allow him to compromise and find comfort. An edge that required him to continue to live as a semi-nomad with no land to call his own, with, with no place to really rest. He was at risk of people coming in and kicking him out. He was at risk of, of not knowing where his next day's water or food is going to come from. That's the life of a semi-nomad. He had flocks and he had lots of flocks, but who knows? Someone might come in in the middle of the night and steal away half of his flocks. That was the life of the semi-nomad, but Abram said, it is better for me to be a semi-nomad than to compromise on who I'm worshiping and how I live by settling in a city. My question for us in 2024 is, is that we reflect and we see, are there any compromises that we have made? that brings us into a place of comfort rather than stay on the edge of what God is saying to us? Are there places of compromise in our lifestyle? Things that we say, that's okay, I don't really worship that, I don't really do that, I'm just living close to it. When we see the father of faith, he's called the father of faith because he lived on the edge rather than in a space of comfort. If you want to see your faith grow, there can be no compromise. No compromise. Every time we compromise, we make it easier to say no to the things that will grow our faith. Every time we compromise, it makes it easier for us to say yes to the things that are eroding our faith and stealing from our lives. During communion, we read from John 10 verse 10, and Jesus says, I come that they might have life and life to the full, but there is a thief that is here to steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible is clear that there is this duality that is either following God and life or everything else which is stealing from us. You cannot choose half of God and disregard the other half. You cannot choose a little bit of God mixed in with a little bit of that. God doesn't allow that. You are not following Him. Lot lived in Sodom and pretended to still be a believer. But he had settled, and he had compromised. There's one final story that I want to bring up to you, 
And this is a story that we find in Genesis chapter 14. And this is in a lead up uh, to the passage that we open up with about God bringing Abram out of the tent. It actually starts that story in Genesis 15 verse 1. It says, and after these things. And so we need to actually consider what are these things. Well, these things are that Abram had actually fought against four kings in order to rescue his dumb nephew called Lot, who time and time again just didn't really get it. But Lot got captured by these kings, and so Abram mustered up his little village of people with his servants, and they got, like, I think, something like 400 guys, and they went to go fight against four kings. Kind of crazy. And he beats those kings, and it's a resounding victory. And on the way back, he meets with a guy named uh, Melchizedek, the high priest, who is also known as the king of Salem. Now, this is a bit of an obscure thing, but uh, to find this random priest king in the Old Testament is kind of like, why? What is going on? But lucky for us, it is actually uh, um, explained to us in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, okay? Melchizedek is a high priest and is a king of a place named Salem, um, and the meaning of the word Salem is peace. And so he's the king of peace, and he's also the high priest of God, and those are titles of Jesus. So we are supposed to kind of see this as Abram, on the way back, was visited by God. And God blesses Abram, and what does Abram do after he receives a blessing from Melchizedek? He gives a tenth of everything that he had, a tenth. He just went, all I've got, 10%, straight to you. Why? Because he recognized that this was God. He gave 10% straight away to God. And at the same time, in this story, there is another king, and it's actually the king of Sodom. This guy keeps popping up. He ain't a good guy. Now, Abram had just rescued Sodom, the king of Sodom, and he was there, and he was like, you know what, I want you to take, even though you've rescued all of us and all of our goods and all of that kind of stuff, uh, I, now I want you to have it. You're the one that rescued us in the first place. I just want my people back. You take all the goods. That's payment for your services. Sounds kind of fair, right? Abram risked his life and the life of his, 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 his men in order to save this king. And this king was saying, now that you have won the victory and got all of this loot, you keep the loot because you did, you did this good thing. Abram actually rejected it. I want you to once again see the tension that is in this story. God, as one king, and the king of Sodom on the other hand, God blesses him, and this king wants to give him earthly riches. What does Abraham choose to do? He rejects earthly riches and he gives 10% to God. How many of us are in a place where we're willing to actually say, because I'm following God and I'm staying on the edge of my faith with you, God, I'm willing to give even though it's going to cost me. And when things come my way that come from evil sources, I'm going to say no. I need to say this. Some of us are in relationships with people that are evil, but give us something that we desperately want. Some of us are in relationship with people that are actually stealing and killing our souls, but we're still saying yes to it because of the riches that come with it. 
If you want to stay on the edge of your faith, you need to say no to the king of Sodom and say yes to the king of peace. Do you know why you don't have peace in your soul? It's because you've been sowing to the king of Sodom. You've been receiving from the king of Sodom rather than sowing into the king of peace. Which king are you going to follow today? God is putting all of these pictures. And as I was looking at these, only three out of many stories of Abraham's life, I saw that he constantly chose the edge, what was uncomfortable, what would take him out of his comfort zone. He continued to say yes to God, even though there was a cost, even though there was something that was actually, you know what, this doesn't make sense, God. You promised me a son that is not here. Ten years later, you promised me a son. Where are you? I might as well say yes to the king of Sodom. How many of us are in a place where we are saying, you know what, stuff it. Following God is going to cost me too much. The king of Sodom is here right now, and he's got a consolation prize that looks good enough for me. See, the edge of our lives, uh, the edge of our talents, the edge of our skills, the edge of our abilities, the edge of all of those things, they are all edges that we can sow into. But can I ask that we start to consider what is the edge of your faith? You know, we read this verse in Genesis 15, verse 6, and you know what is a verse that doesn't make a lot of sense? Because this is what it says, and Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Doesn't make sense. All that Abram did was step out of his tent and look at some stars. And sometimes it feels like when we come to God and we are trying to have faith, it looks like we've got nothing to show for it. God, what does faith look like? Look at the stars. And then? And what? But it's about this understanding that, God, I'm trusting you with everything. See, God can read your trust. God understands the state of your heart. God, more than anything else, more than anyone else, understands what is in our heart. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks into the heart of people. And when he saw Abram standing out of his tent, looking at the stars, he recognized that Abram was saying, my trust and my hope is in you. There are some things that I believe that God is calling each and every one of us to hope in when it comes to God. There are some behaviors that need to align with that. There are some things that we need to say no to, and there are some things that we need to say yes to. We need to say yes to following Christ. We need to say yes to staying away from immoral behaviors. We need to say yes uh, to, to, to sowing into God, uh, uh, the King of Peace. We need to say yes to those. We need to say no to settling into cities of immorality. We need to say no to kings who bring us good, uh, well, what looks like good gifts but come from an evil heart. But at the heart of it is not about those behaviors. At the heart of it is a heart that says, I trust you and I hope in you. And this morning, I really sense that God is wanting to stir up a hope in people's hearts. If we can get the band up this morning. When we think about the edge, what comes to mind? When we think about the edge that God is calling you to, what comes to mind? 
as I relate, related these stories of Abram and the journey that he was on and the times that he said yes to the edge and not to comfort, what comes to mind? And how do you think you're going to go staying on that edge? Do you feel like you've got the strength to stay on that edge? Do you feel like you've got the promise of God to stand on so that when comfort comes your way, you'll be able to say no because you're going to continue to trust in God? 2024 could be a year of great unleashing of God's promises. But 2024 could also be a year of great compromise. The truth is both are always right in front of us. The edge is always available to us and compromise is always available to us. But God is calling us to move towards the edge. You know, this year has already been a big year for me of learning how to step out into the edge. You know, after three years of COVID disrupting everything, we got a year that has has opened up. And at the start of the year, when we were really thinking about moving into this building, it really scared me to put all my hope in the possibility of having this facility. I remember speaking to my pastor. I said, Pastor Joel, more than anything before, I feel like everything that I've got is so invested into us moving into this building that if we don't get in there, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I've got what it takes to continue. I don't know if I've got what it takes uh, to keep going where we are at. I don't know if I've got what it takes to go through the roller coasters of trying again. And I remember him just saying so simply to me, he said, Nate, that's what faith is. And I was like, it's scary, this faith business, because I need to have my plan B. I need to know that if this crumbles down, that I will know what to do. But Pastor Joel said, no, 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 no. Faith looks like this, that when you see something that God is opening up, no matter how scary it is, you give your 100% to that. Knowing that if that falls through, God is a God of grace and He's able to pick you up again. You will find the strength if this fails. But if you don't give yourself 100% into this endeavor, you've not been putting your faith behind it. After that day, I prayed as though this building was ours. After that day, I made sure that every prayer was not like, please, Lord, if this is your will, I said, God, I believe 100% that this is your will. I don't have anything else to give. There's some of us that need to have that kind of faith that we need to sow into God's kingdom and say, come on, it's God or nothing, it's God or nothing, it's God or nothing. And even though my God might look like He's leading me into situations that might bring fear and trepidation into my heart, I would rather be in the boat with Jesus Then on the shore of safety. So why don't we stand this morning? God is stirring something up for her church. Next year is not going to be more of the same church. 
is not, we're going to the edge, we're going to the edge. We're going to the edge because God's got more. God is promising us more. He's bringing us out of the tent. He's asking us to look at the stars. He's, kindly, he's, he's, he's saying that there's more. There's generations to be touched with the gospel. There are generations to be blessed by His grace. And we as a church need to be ready to step out of our comfort into the things that He is leading us to. And yes, it's going to be a big call. I'm not going to mince my words. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. In fact, there are going to be times where it feels like compromise makes so much more sense. But I'm going to say to you, come on, let's think about the edge. Let's move towards the edge. Let's move away from the things that cause us to compromise. And let's move towards the things that God is saying, come on, I've got for you. Some of you have let go of the call of God in your life because you are waiting too long for His fulfillment. Some of you have given up on the things that God has said that your life is going to look like because it's taken too long. And you've been living too long close to Sodom and looking at all the ways that is appealing. But God's saying, come on, come back to the hill. Come back to that place where you know that He's blessing. Come back to that place. Come back to worship. Come back to trust. Come back to peace. Come on, sow into peace, church. Sow into peace. Come on, I want to pray for you this morning. Raise your hands if you want to step into the edge this next year. Raise your hands as a sign of God. I I want this. This is what I need. Jesus, I pray that you help us to the edge. Even though there is fear in my heart, even if there's anxiety in my soul, God, I want to step into the edge. I want more of you, God. I want to hear your voice so clearly like never before. I want to see your life in mine. God, I've done. I've had enough of the enemy stealing and killing and destroying. I've had enough of the enemy taking the things away from me. And I want life. I want your life, Jesus. God, I pray that you begin to reignite vision in people. You begin to reignite vision in people. You begin to lead them out and to see the stars and to see the God that you are leading us to more, to more, to more. I prophesy in the name of Jesus that you're taking us into the cusp of something brand new, something amazing, the blessings that come with your presence. And I pray to God that we will have the courage to step into it in the mighty name of Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.